Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we just completed our most recent conference in New York City for the first time a couple weeks ago, which we were thrilled to do. But our goal with those conferences and our goal on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome the Reverend Al Sharpton to SALT Talks. Uh, the Reverend is an internationally renowned civil rights leader, founder, and the president of the National Action Network, which has more than 100 chapters across the country. Hailed by former President Barack Obama as a champion for the downtrodden, Reverend Sharpton is the host of Politics Nation on MSNBC, a nationally syndicated daily radio show, Keeping It Real, and a nationally broadcast radio show on Sunday titled The Hour of Power. A disciple of the teachings of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Reverend Sharpton has been at the forefront of the modern civil rights movement for nearly half a century. He's championed police reform and accountability, calling for the elimination of unjust policies like stop and frisk. He has fought for voting rights, equity in education and health care, as well as LGBTQ rights also. Uh, across the years, Reverend Sharpton has advocated for those who have been victimized, including Yusuf Hawkins, Michael Stewart, Amadou Diallo, Abner Louima, Sean Bell, the Gina Six, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and many others who unfortunately have been the victims of brutality. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is the global alternative investment firm uh, that also backs SALT, the global thought leadership forum of which Anthony is the chairman. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Uh, John, thank you. Re Reverend, it's always a pleasure to be with you. I I will always remember the first time I met you, and I'm going to take you back to the Regency Hotel. I had breakfast with you with Phil Murphy, who's now the governor of New Jersey. Yeah. And uh, you were at that time contemplating a run for the presidency. I believe it was in 04. Uh, yeah. And we were sitting in the Regency Hotel uh, talking about these issues uh, and you're a very easy guy to like, sir. I want to I want to go to your life experiences that shaped you into the person that you are today. And I would say that uh, for me, you're a role model in a lot of ways because you've evolved over a period of time in your career. Uh, I'm trying to do the same thing. Tell us a little bit about your life. Well, I, I was born and uh, raised in Brooklyn, New York. My parents uh, were... Uh, Black middle class entrepreneurs. My father owned a construction and plumbing company and owned a house I was uh, uh, first brought to from the hospital. Mother was a homemaker and, and uh, ran a newsstand grocery store in the corner. And it did well enough that we moved to Queens, which in those days we felt was the suburbs, bought a nice corner house in Hollis. And uh, I wanted to uh, be like my bishop in church. I started preaching. Uh, in church at four years old. Uh, they, I kept saying, I want to preach, I want to preach. When the junior usher board had their anniversary program, they let me preach and stood me on a box and it was about 900 people. And I started preaching and uh, they started regularly letting me preach at youth services. 
around Brooklyn. By the time I was 10, I was uh, licensed and ordained by the bishop. So I literally grew up a preacher. I didn't have a childhood uh, like most kids because when my playmates saw that um, their parents were going to hear me preach, it was awkward for them to play with me. So, uh, But then when I was 10, my parents had a very traumatic breakup. Uh, and uh, our father abandoned us. We lost the house, lost the cars. But we moved back into Brooklyn, my mother, sister, and I. And she was on welfare, became a domestic worker. And I think, Hooch, uh, that was the basis of my activism, as I reviewed in life later, is that I learned uh, from that move the uh, difference between zip code. Because I would, we were in the housing projects for a few months, and uh, I would say to the other kids in the, in the uh, projects, well, why is all that garbage piled up? They said they pick up the garbage on Saturday. But where I had been in Hollis, Queens, they picked it up twice a day. And then they would call an ambulance, it wouldn't come. And I think that is what started um, the seeds of my activism. So by the time I was 11, I would you know, spend a lot of time going around bookstores. I always read a lot. And uh, I was a loner because, like I said, a lot of kids thought it was awkward to deal with a boy preacher. I saw this book in a bookstore. And there was a guy on the cover of the book that had a clergyman's collar on. So I was interested because he was a preacher. I was a preacher. And it looked like a white guy. And I bought the book with 99 cents at that time, paperback book. It was on Adam Clayton Powell, the black congressman and minister from Harlem. Mm-hmm. And I read that about him. And I wanted to be like that. And I kept bugging my mother. And she finally let me go to Harlem uh, with my sister, who was older than me, to uh, he had him claim power preach. Then I found my way into his office, and he had heard me preach on radio on my bishop's uh, uh, broadcast. So that started me in activism. Uh, my mother was concerned because she was fundamentalist uh, Pentecostal. She didn't want me to get out there with the, quote, bad crowd that wasn't in the church. And she brought me to Reverend William Jones, who brought me to Jesse Jackson. Both of them were much older than me. And they said, look, we'll keep him in the movement, but we'll keep him in the church. And they made me youth director of Operation Breadbasket, which was Dr. King's economic arm in the North. And the rest was history. That's where I started. That's what shaped me, the black church, a single mother, and getting the right mentor. Also, it's an interesting experience because the movement into the projects, you recognize, you know, the zip code thing, right? We have uneven education system. Um, and, you know, I'm all about having a platform of equal opportunity for people. And I think you remember this from my life story. My, my dad was a crane operator. So I, I, uh, and I had a great middle-class upbringing. I'm not, I would never dishonor him by saying that I didn't, but you, you definitely can see the stratification that happens in a society related to wealth. And it's no fault of the kids that are born into different areas. You know, you don't, you don't choose the place of your birth. Uh, or your skin color, for that matter. So let's talk about the state of race relations in America today, Reverend. Are we making progress? I think that uh, in some areas, uh, we have made some progress. In other areas, we have not. Uh, What do I mean by that? When you look at the fact that our uh, kids, uh, the people that are in their 20s and 30s, the age of my daughter, they grow up in a different social setting than I would have. So when I tell them 
30 years ago, I'd march in certain neighborhoods because blacks would be killed for being in the neighborhood. They see those neighborhoods much differently than I do. Uh, but at the same time, we still have the same disproportionate uh, uh, experience when it comes to health care or education or uh, ec economic issues. So I think the, the structural inequalities uh, are still there. The social inequalities are broader, not only for Blacks, but for uh, LGBTQ and others. Uh, I think we have work to do, but we're further than we were when I grew up. Uh, I think it was exacerbated by those demagogues that want to play on the other side, uh, like our former president, uh, uh, who you and I have talked about, and others who wants to stoke the fear of others, they're thinking, making them think that e equalizing society is a threat to them and that they have to fight back. And I think that uh, that is exacerbated by those on the far left of my side that wants to play uh, uh, the opposite, the flip side of the same coin, rather than say it is about us building a country for equal opportunity for everybody based on merit. So it's just as important to me to deal with a policeman that's out of control and that has broke the law as it is to in your area, which you've uh, supported, making sure that major corporations give guys a chance to manage money uh, in, in your area. I mean, I, I work with people that are black uh, uh, money managers that can uh, deliver and, and do uh, business just like others if given the opportunity. But at the same time, don't give them the opportunity and and you go in and fail. So I tell a guy that may be a money manager, deals with hedge funds, deals with whatever, that you've got to go in. If we say to a union, use this guy to uh, handle investment or pension funds, you've got to come back with a better rate than the other guy. Otherwise, you are hurting the cause. And it's not because of your race, but you will uh, disprove that we're saying if given opportunity, we can rise. So I think that the right. state of the race now is diversified in trying to make it work in several areas at the same time. Um, I, I want to get to President Trump in a second, but I want to ask you this question. Uh, and in 1984, it was interesting, there was a, it was a course I took at Tufts, it was called Race Awareness. I'm a 20-year-old kid even though I grew up in an area uh, where, you know, we had blacks and Italians and Irish and Jews and some mixed group of people. It wasn't until I took this race awareness course. And it was actually taught by a, a gentleman by the name of James Vance. He was in the military uh, and he was, uh, it, it was, a, it was a great course. We talked about Adam Clayton Powell. We talked about your situations that were going on because that was in the mid eighties. So your name frankly came up a lot. And I guess what dawned on me at that time, at the ripe old age of 20, sir, is that there were institutional biases and institutional racism in the country. I had never thought about it before until he brought in a white Barbie doll and a white Ken doll and said, OK, so where are the black Ken dolls? At that time, there weren't many, frankly. Wow. Um, and I guess my question to you is, have we chipped away at institutional racism and biases, or are we confirming them? Where are we? I, I think we have began to chip away, but we are nowhere near where we need to be. And uh, 
when you look at the fact that there's a debate going on right now on whether to have critical race theory, which is only talking uh, about in law schools, the idea of institutional racism, uh, there's the resistance. But at the same time, uh, we've elected and reelected a black president. And at this point of during my conversation, we have a sitting black vice president. So uh, I'm old enough to remember when we thought that would never happen. And we have seen it happen. So I think as much as I fight, as much as I'm still on the front lines, I remind people of progress because you don't want to have people in a, a, in a cynical view that nothing is going to work because it has. To go from when I was 18 years old, when I was the youth director of Shirley Chisholm's campaign for president, to seeing a Kamala Harris as vice president is progress. To go from admiring Adam Clayton Powell to being accessible in the White House to Barack Obama is progress. Now, the progress should not make us relax and stop pursuing a more fair and just uh, system and, and how it deals equitably with everybody because we still have a long way to go. But it always encourages us, Blacks and whites, that look at what we can do. So let's go ahead and finish the, the uh, journey. Because if whites hadn't voted for Obama, he wouldn't have been president. And if whites had not also voted for Biden with a Black running mate, she wouldn't be vice president. So we've got to find a way, as uncomfortable as it may be for some, to do this together. Otherwise, we became permanently entrenched and I don't want to leave that world. Mm-hmm. I and I and I and I appreciate that. I, I've always wanted to ask you this question, and so now I've got you. I'm going to ask you the question, and I want to talk about a blockhead, and that's somebody that is institutionally racially charged and biased. Uh, somebody who is a full-on racist, sir. Uh, and I know you've encountered them in your life. Is there a way to crack? the code there? Is there a way to break down their biases? Is there, is, have you ever had an encounter with somebody who was a full-on racist uh, who has seen the light? And if so, how so? I, I, I have talked to several people throughout my journey that have said uh, that they were just full-blown racist. And I would say, based on what? And they would go from everything from they honestly believed that uh, blacks were biologically inferior uh, to those that believe we were intellectually inferior and uh, uh, to those that just felt that we just were so socially uh, 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 incapable of operating a society. And when you get down to the root of it, they cannot back up with any facts or data it is something that has been passed down to them. It's more cultural, it's more family, it's more in their environment. I can't say that I've seen a lot of them that I've met turn around, but I can say that I've seen them engage in enough dialogue to where I've at least left some of those encounters with them questioning uh, what they thought in advance. Uh, I've also met those that had a total different view of the movements for equality that have turned around. And uh, I, I, I've, I've, I'll give you an example where I've met people that said, you know, I think all of y'all's marching and protesting and what you're doing is just tearing up the country and da, 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 da. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If somebody came to you and you're a minister 
and said that a policeman shot my son in the back of his head. He was unarmed and uh, he did nothing wrong. What should I do? What's the proper reaction? Well, you should go to the authorities. And if I go to the authorities and they won't do anything, what should I do? Should I tell them he's just dead, forget about it? Well, no, you ought to get their attention. I said, how do I get their attention? And they say, I guess maybe you have to protest. I said, that's exactly what I do. I think sometimes, and I, and I concede that when I was younger, I might not have stopped and explained it that way. But I think sometimes you have to walk people through what you do because all they see is a 30 second soundbite and they don't understand why you're doing what you're doing and you don't understand why they don't understand. And there the divide uh, remains. Oh, well, right? I mean, and this it's is exploited by people on both sides. And this is something, sir, that I do admire about you, your intellectual evolution and your also your uh, your outreach. You know, the fact that you are willing to engage with people like that and not shut them down. You know, it's the it's the cause of Martin Luther King. You know, I just uh, 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 Don Phillips wrote a book about the leadership principles of Martin Luther King. It just came out again. He revised it. And uh, a lot of those teachings are in there. You know, the engagement, the consistency of outreach, even to those people who are filled with hatred. Uh, which is unexplained. And so I, I've always admired that about you. Let's go to Donald Trump for a second. And Mr. Darcy here is dying to ask you questions from Durham, North let Carolina. Me just, let me just say something very quick, Anthony. You, you asked that question about blockheads, and it, it made me think of a book that I read growing up. I did grow up in Durham, North Carolina, as I mentioned in the open, Reverend Sharpton. There's a great book that I would recommend to people called The Best of Enemies that is about a woman named Ann Atwater and a Klansman named C.P. Ellis. And they get together and they sort of, you know, get to know each other and mend their differences. It's a story about sort of people changing their their ways and, and reconciling different points of view. And it's it's a great book about about that, about how people, if they just get to know people from a human level, that they can really change their their views. So just to interrupt the programming for that point. No, but, no, uh, no, not at all, John. And I, and, I, and I know you've got a lot of questions for the reverend, so I'm going to be brief here. I just have a few more. I want to talk about Donald Trump for a second. Uh, we both knew... Donald Trump, I knew him for a very long time, as I know you did. Did you think his presidency would manifest itself the way it did? And then did he help race relations in the country by making us more aware of our divide? Or did he hurt race relations? So first question is, did you think he was going to end up like that? I certainly didn't. Obviously, I wouldn't have supported him. You know, I, I met Donald Trump. Uh, my introduction to him was in the late 80s when we dealt with that he had he and his father had a discrimination uh, lawsuit by the federal government about their housing. So we started off uh, being, you know, uh, on on a opposite sides of, of a race case. But then about two years later, Don King uh, uh, was going to do some fights in Atlantic City. Uh, Trump had the exclusive on the convention center. And uh, King said to me, look, Trump wants to meet you and settle whatever beef y'all have and become friendly. He's not a bigot in that the court thing and all of that. So I remember the first time I really had a long conversation with him is I rode his black helicopter with Don King and him riding to uh, Atlantic City uh, to uh, look at the convention center. They're going to do a Tyson fight. And the objective was to put me in the helicopter and me and Trump get to know each other. As we're riding that hour... 45 minutes to an hour, 
Don King, Donald Trump sitting in front of me talking, both of them incessantly. Neither one of them looked like they came up for breath. Neither one of them listening to each other. It was the most surreal time in my life. <laughs> and that's where I got off the helicopter saying, this guy's just a self-promoter, total narcissist. And if Don King had been born white, he'd have been Donald Trump. That was my view of it. And I never took him that seriously. I'd see him at fights. He'd invite me to social events. And I felt he was a showman. I felt he was Don King in white. My hope when he got elected as president, to get to your question, was that he would grow. Why did I want to think that he could grow much? Because I grew. The, the, the guy that I started in the jumpsuit at just the marches learned as I went because I felt I had a responsibility yes. to the same people I'm marching for that I'm still marching for to do what I could do at a different level as best I could. So I kept saying to people, he's done some real cost things. He's done some things that I think are racist, but maybe he'll grow into it. He's in the White House now. This is the ultimate power and the ultimate, there's nowhere to go up from this. He always had a chip on his shoulder. He would say to me sometimes, oh, you know, I'm an outsider. Even though I got money, they don't like me, the elite. I remember uh, Mooch right after he got elected. He called me about three weeks later. I had been on Morning Joe that morning. And uh, I had said, you got to understand Donald Trump. He was born in Queens. He was an out of borough guy. His father and him were not part of the Manhattan elite. You right. talked about the Regency. They were not the ones that would sit the Regency or the or the power places. They were yeah. outsiders. He had that chip on his shoulder. And he could communicate that to the guys in Appalachia that he, even though he's a billionaire, at least on paper, I'm one of y'all. They don't like me. Right. And I thought he'd rise since he was president now that they had to deal with him. Right. He stayed right where he was or got worse. He I got think worse. he, he got polarized worse. the country more. I think he brought trash uh, ideas into the White House, trash in terms of unthought out uh, policies. He never, ever got past his own skin. Did he help race relations? I think he exposed race relations because right. I think he was so committed to playing on white fears that he never tried to in any way or shape or form bridge the gap. And I think ultimately he will end up in a tragic figure in history. He had an opportunity to grow. You and I and anybody else, you grow in state, you're not the same person in the fifth grade you was in the second grade. You grow with grade. He never got out of the kindergarten of narcissism. Yeah. Well, listen, I think it, I think it's well said. I mean, obviously, it's one of the mistakes I've made in my life. But, you know, it's life. You know, you, you, you make mistakes. You got to move forward. Let's let's talk about Eric Adams for a second. Um uh, we had the opportunity to host uh, Eric Adams. Uh, he was our keynote speaker at our SALT conference. Uh Two weeks ago, he opened the conference at the new VIP extension of the Javits Center, and he talked about uh, his plans for the city. Uh, obviously, I would like to see him become the next mayor. I'm just full of, uh, full exposure here. I'm one of his donors and uh, a big believer in him. Uh, what do you think of uh, Eric Adams? What are your expectations? Uh, should he win the mayorship? And what advice would you give him, sir? You know, uh, Eric Adams... Uh, was part of a Reverend Herbert Daughtry's gathering, who was one of uh, my mentors. And Herbert Daughtry used to preach to people in our community in Brooklyn. 
Uh, don't just fight the police system. Go inside. Let's change it from the inside. Eric went inside, came a policeman, and some of the activists got on him, called him a name and all that, but he took it. He was strong. I knew him from then. When I started National Action Network 30 years ago, our attorney, uh, attorney Michael Hardy, who's still our executive vice president, general counsel, said we need five people to sign and incorporate National Action Network. And uh, I said, fine. One of the five that signed was a cop named Eric Adams. That's how well I know him. And I've watched him and he's watched me. Uh, I remember times that I was under threat. He would get black cops to uh, protect me. So one of the reasons my daughter uh, went out and endorsed him and, and did commercials for him is he grew up Uncle Eric. And we debate issues. I mean, he would try to work with Republicans more than I would. And we always was honest with each other. He has integrity. And he does not have fear. I think he will be a good mayor. I think that he will give the balance of holding police accountable but fighting crime at the same time. I think it is one of the most racially insulting things people have is to think that when people in the black community or the brown community raise questions about policing, we're anti-police. We're not anti-police. We are anti-bad police. We need police. Two and a half weeks after I did the eulogy at George Floyd's funeral in Minneapolis and Houston, I did the funeral of a one-year-old black kid in Bed-Stuy who was killed by a stray bullet in a gang fight. We've got to save that kid just like we have to save George Floyd. It's not either or, it's both and. And I think Eric Adams is going to be that kind of guy. And I think he's the kind of person that will tell people in his own community, I think this is wrong, you're going overboard, and he'll tell it in the white community. And that's the kind of mayor we need. This city is in trouble. They need somebody that's going to shoot straight. It says what they mean and mean what they say. And I believe Eric is that kind of guy. He's been that way the 35 years I've known. You know, I have a lot. Of, and I agree with you, sir. I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. John Dorsey. I know he has a series of questions for you. We really appreciate you joining us on Salt Talks. And uh, uh, when Salt Talks is over, though, sir, I got to go over your diet, okay? I've gained, I've, gained, I've gained probably well, ten. Maybe if you give me an, a VIP extension of the Javits Center, we can work that out. All right, we're gonna have, we're gonna have to do a trade there, okay? Because I right. got I didn't get COVID nineteen, but I think I gained nineteen pounds during COVID. So I I need your help, sir. Okay, I'm looking forward All right. to. All right, we're we're. I'm gonna, talk. Follow, I'm gonna follow you around, and figure out what you're eating. <laughs> but in the meantime, go ahead, John. Reverend, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on Salt Talk. So something that you've always been a champion of, uh, and even you know more so recently, it's come into the spotlight is voting rights. You know, uh, in the twenty the twenty twenty election, there was a, a spotlight shined on voting rights because of Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the election, things of that nature. And today, Democrats have control of Congress, but it's a very thin margin, and there's the potential for them to lose control in twenty twenty two, especially if they don't consolidate uh, around some of these voting rights issues. You know, what is the danger for Democrats, especially in this cycle, in terms of not being aggressive and removing the filibuster uh, in terms of their long term control, in terms of executing their agenda? Well, the immediate danger, John, is they could lose the uh, majority in the Senate and the House. You must remember, we only have uh, 50, 50 Republican to Democrat in the Senate. If they lose one Senate seat, it's 51-49. They won't pass anything. And Biden and Harris will be dead in terms of legislation. Uh, uh, so from the immediate political thing, that's the fallout. 
But the other, the other thing that embellishes that is that when they change in several states now, Texas, Georgia, Florida, proposals in other states, laws that makes it more difficult for blacks and browns to vote, the turnout is impeded by these new laws. If you don't have the turnout and the same numbers, you lose because you didn't fight these laws. And the only way to fight these laws is with a federal voting rights protection law. If, if in the 60s, they had to fight state by state, we would have never had voting rights. And what they did was get the Voting Rights Act of 65, which protected them against these kinds of laws. We had a right to vote established in the Constitution of the 15th Amendment. What we didn't have was the right to stop those that would put impediments in front of us. So they would say, oh, you got the right to vote here in, in uh, Georgia. How many jelly beans in that jar? Who is a uh, 18th president United States mother-in-law? So the Voting Rights Act stopped that. And that's what they're coming with now. We have these different restrictions. And if the Democrats don't knock those restrictions down, their base will not be able to vote at the same numbers. And if they don't vote on uh, them down, their base will not be enthused enough to vote because people are going to say, we came out in 2020 in unusual numbers and you did not stand up. Right. right. You know, I think in a lot of ways, Democrats don't uh, bring the same weapons to the fight that Republicans do. They're a little bit more timid in terms of their tactics and trying to make sure that they consolidate power and, and ensure there's fairness in the process. Another example of that is gerrymandering. So you've seen certain states around the country, my home state of North Carolina, certainly among them, has gerrymandered itself in such a way that the Republicans have maintained power despite the fact that the population of those states is actually moving more blue. Um, there was a New York Times podcast recently about the opportunity in New York to, to potentially gerrymander the state of New York in a way that would benefit Democrats in a very significant way in the House of Representatives. One, do you think that, that Democrats are aggressive enough in, in making sure that they fight back against sort of Republican tactics to consolidate power? And two, do you think New York should gerrymander itself until the point that we get some sort of comprehensive legislation around districting? I think that uh, for the first part of your question, I think that the uh, Democrats absolutely do not uh, come with the same kind of focus, uh, laser focus on we're going to get these things done. This is what we promised our constituent. And we are going to fight you uh, hand and, and uh, foot to get them done. You cannot, you know, the old expression of you can't bring a knife to a gunfight. And that's how they've come off. Uh, and I believe that you've got to be just as committed and just as aggressive as your opponent, particularly if you think you're right. Uh, in terms of uh, the uh, how they deal with gerrymandering, I think the Democrats have to look at the map all over this country. I'm seeing where we're losing congressional seats. The way they've drawn the map in New York of, from the census, they'd lose a congressional seat. So where is that going to be taken from? Who is going to be disempowered in terms of having the ability to put the right people in the Congress and, and, and in uh, local legislative or, or state legislative seats? I think you've got to play hardball. If you, My position to Democrats have been if you didn't want to play hardball, you shouldn't have showed up for the team. Don't get in the Senate and the Congress and get soft. That's not why we put you. 
Are they being soft about the filibuster? Does there need to be a more aggressive push to get rid of the filibuster? Absolutely. Uh, I think that when you look at the fact that the filibuster is there other than on fiscal matters, something that deals with finance, and they went, uh, they did a carve-out to confirm Supreme Court judges. Same uh, McConnell did a carve-out to confirm Donald Trump's uh, Supreme Court judges. So you can't do a carve-out on voting rights? What's more fundamental than the right to vote being protected? Or you can't do a carve-out on policing? What's more fundamental than public uh, crime uh, uh, officials being held accountable? So either you're going to have it totally revoked or you're going to have a carve-out for the fundamental things that you promised people. And this, this excuse from them is, well, what happens when we're in the minority? If you deliver for your constituents, you won't be in the minority. And I think that that is where we've got to fight. Who fights saying, suppose I lose the next fight, win this fight, and worry about the next fight, the next fight? Right. So Anthony asked you about Donald Trump and what he did for race relations. You know, I think Joe Biden probably owes his presidency to Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, who obviously a champion of, of civil rights down there, who, who helped him turn around his campaign. And so there was a lot of um, you know, hope that President Biden and the Biden administration would aggressively uh, do everything they could to improve the lives of black Americans. Do you think that President Biden has lived up to the promise that he had as a champion uh, you know, for civil rights and for black America? Or do you still He's think there's work to be months. done? He's been in eight months and uh, we met several times. I went to his speech on voting rights and I told him that the rhetoric is stronger than I've heard in a long time but the results must match the rhetoric. When he made that speech in Philly, I was sitting on the second row, right behind his sister. And after the speech, he'd come over, he talked about white supremacy, he talked about how people were methodically trying to eliminate black rights to vote. And I told him, I said, I remember when I was a little boy, President Lyndon Johnson made a speech and he said, we shall overcome. And my mother, you would have thought it was Christmas in our house. I said, your speech was like that. Only one word was missing. He said, what was that, Al? I said, filibuster. None of what you say can happen unless we carve around the filibuster because they won't pass the bill. I think that uh, Joe Biden, in his mind and heart, wants to do the right thing. He needs to stand up to his old uh, uh, colleagues in the Senate and say, if you don't do this, I'm going to support the carve out of the filibuster and go to the mat. This is not a time uh, for us to act like people have not declared war. I understand he wants to do things bipartisan. But when you've got a guy like Mitch McConnell, who's saying, I won't even raise the debt ceiling in the country, y'all are going to have to do it, even though I'm going to tell you we need to raise the debt ceiling, but I'm not going to help you. How do you have a bipartisan conversation with a guy like that? Right. Let's talk about immigration for a second. So you recently were down at the southern border uh, you know, addressing the issue with the Haitian migrants who are now have been sent back to Haiti. And if Trump, I think, turned immigration from what was certainly a, a key issue in people's minds to a really hot button issue that sort of uh, dominates a lot of the rhetoric around politics these days. So how do we solve the immigration crisis? Obviously, we want to show compassion. Uh, that's part of the ethos of the United States in terms of welcoming uh, migrants and, and refugees while at the same time, you know, keeping our borders secure uh, and maintaining our legal immigration system. But how do we solve it? I think we got 
to uh, really, uh, first of all, it's a difficult issue to deal with, but we have to have one standard. You cannot have asylum for some and not asylum for others. I went to the border because I was outraged and I, I brought a delegation of ministers and civil rights leaders. I was outraged when I saw uh, these uh, uh, Border Patrol people on horses with whips in their hand. I mean, this is like 1850, a plantation stuff. And I wanted to go and show that we were not going to stand by and allow Haitians to be treated differently than other people trying to come in the country. So my question then became uh, uh, on immigration to the Biden administration. If you come from a country where the president of the nation had just been assassinated less than two months before, the chief prosecutor in that country said the prime minister was involved. There's bedlam in the streets because you have a fragile government at best. And then you get hit with an earthquake followed up by a tropical storm. If that doesn't qualify for asylum, tell me what does. You can't say that we're letting in people from Afghanistan because the the, uh, Taliban and they helped us in in, uh, the 20-year war. But we're not going to let people in from Haiti who has the situation equal to a, a government that can't function. And a lot of why that nation was poor was this engagement with the United States. So what's the standard here? And I think that wherever we go, John, and it's going to be a difficult uh, situation and everybody's not going to be pleased, but wherever we go in immigration, it has to be one set of rules and it has to be where it can't be a double standard. Well said. Um, Anthony referenced earlier the fact that you've evolved over your life in terms of your your views and your approaches to certain things. And you're not just a champion for black people and, and racial minorities, but you're also a champion for the LGBTQ community, which is something that's very important to us, important to Anthony. He was a, a big advocate in the fight for marriage equality. But what, how have you evolved over the years and why is it so important to you to be a champion for all the marginalized minority segments of the population? You know, Growing up in in a fundamentalist church, you automatically hear the homophobia and and that, you know, this is wrong, this is a sin. And my sister, who's three years older than me, who grew up, uh, me and her and my mother, uh, was gay all of my life. And I remember she used to make me go to the Greenwich Village. And she started saying to me, because I was born and in, in, in I'm a certain way, uh, you may disagree with it theologically, but do you have the right to force me by law to be limited from the same right you have? This is when I'm 12, 13 years old and just had joined civil rights. She said, because if you do, then George Wallace has the right to limit us because you're black. She said, because I'm black and, 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 and gay at the same time, same person. And that's what started moving me, my own sister. And I remember years later when uh, I, I started saying then, well, you know, we need to look at, at this gay uh, question different uh, all through my teen years. When I started my youth group, there was a iconic civil rights figure named Bayard Rustin who was gay. He gave me the money to start my youth group. And he was shunned, even though he was the master organizer of the 63 March on Washington. They wanted to keep him in the background because he was gay. So I started seeing my sister in all of this. But so I would come out publicly, but I would be slight. I never got all the way there. 
until I uh, got ready to deal with, I was uh, getting ready to run for president. And I talked to my sister and I said, I'm going to be uh, dealing with this LGBTQ question on my platform outright. She says, you're getting ready to do a debate uh, on uh, with Sam Donaldson on uh, uh, same-sex marriage. And uh, what are you going to say? I said, uh, I don't know. She said, you don't know? I said, no. I said, like I said, you know, I'm for gay rights. I've been saying that for years. She said, but what are you going to say about same-sex marriage? I said, I don't know. And uh, she says, okay, I get it. Uh, she says, you know, I have a partner. I said, yeah. And you know my partner. She has a white uh, partner who's uh, uh, white and, you know, is a female. She says, so let me get this right. According to Reverend Al Sharp, the civil rights leader, my partner and I, who you know, have the right to shack up, but we don't have the right to marry. I don't have the right that she would be my wife if something happened to me. Because civil rights stops at where it becomes legal. So the moral principle, Reverend Al, is that you can shack up, but you can't marry. I get it. And she hung up the phone. And I called back and said, I get it. And that's when I came out for same-sex marriage. Because I told preachers, you don't want to perform the wedding. Fine. How are you going to stop a judge or a city municipality to go by what we believe? If you do that, you empower other people by what they believe to become law. So I believe LGBTQ rights is a civil right, whether people believe in it in a religious way or not. And I've even evolved on the religious part, but I'm just saying your belief, this is a democracy, not a theocracy. And we've even evolved in a lot of our theological views. I think it is absolutely abhorrible of uh, those that will uh, deal with the law by trying to legalize and make law our personal belief. Amen. I think that's a great way to finish. I grew up going to an open and affirming church and certainly, you know, welcoming those uh, LGBTQ members of our community into the church was certainly a very rewarding thing and providing them a home where a lot of people in the in the Christian community don't don't have that sort of uh, welcoming. I've evolved to understand that and embrace it. All right. Well, Reverend, it's a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. Anthony, have a final word for the Reverend before we let him go? No, listen, I'm a I'm a huge fan. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing to get invited on that radio show of yours, okay? I mean, no, you, know, you got to do my television show first, Politics Nation. I want you on MSNBC. Right, well, you, and I want to say this, John. Mooch says he wants to follow me around and go on a diet. He took a break and went and ate something and came back. I just want you to know. <laughs> exactly. And it looked like pasta, Reverend. No, I thought no, it was no. a salad. I was giving I'm him the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm, I'm actually eating some of the most boring stuff in the world. You probably don't even need that, you know? You look like you're having like lemon water all day, by the way. I'm just giving you the heads up. Okay. There's you know something no Italian could survive on. Okay. But that's what you look like, Ref. <laughs> I'm, I'm real careful what I eat. I the, work the, out every the, day. The truth be told, I probably couldn't follow you around all day because I'm I'm too much of a gavon, okay, which is a special Italian word that I can only call myself. But all in right. any event. And even I am coming on Politics Nation. You heard that, okay? Because, Reverend, you know the most dangerous place in the world, right? It's not Fallujah. It's between me and a television camera, sir. Well, so, so you know I'm coming. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Good to have right. you on, sir. It's really right, always thanks. a pleasure to be with you.
Really enjoyed it. Good to see you, Mook. Thank you again to Reverend Al Sharpen, Sharpton, and thank you again to everybody who tuned in to today's Salt Talk with the Reverend. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website. It's salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is on SaltTube. The Salt YouTube channel and website now has all of our uh, panels from Salt New York 2021 that we'll be posting every couple of weeks uh, for the next several months. So if you weren't able to attend the conference, we've taken an approach of opening up that content to a wider audience. So definitely go to our, web our website, subscribe to our YouTube channel to get uh, those panels as well. Uh, please follow us on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also doing more on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook as well. And on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.